Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to The Full Ratchet for an interview covering a topic that's very near and dear to our firm's mission. Today, we have one of my favorite investors of all time, Ben Einstein, on the program to talk about hardware as a service, setting a narrow customer focus, and finding success through lowering user expectations. Yes, you heard that right. Ben is a strong believer in setting low customer expectations. In part one of the interview, he'll describe why as we cover things including his focus area at Bolt, their hardware thesis, designing for use cases versus platforms, why Snap Spectacles had a better approach than Google Glass, the key differences between Siri and Echo, how hardware founders think about design iteration, and we'll wrap up with Ben's polarizing viewpoint on why crowdfunding campaigns can do more damage than good. Here's part one of a very fun interview with Ben Einstein of Bolt. Ben Einstein joins us today from San Francisco. He's founder and general partner at Bolt, a seed stage VC fund that invests capital, staff, prototyping facilities, and expertise in hardware startups. Prior to Bolt, Ben ran a product design and development consultancy where he brought a range of products to market in sectors including consumer electronics, high-performance audio, sports goods, and clean tech. Ben, welcome to the program, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. Yeah. Can you start off with your background and your path to venture? Totally, yeah. Uh, path to, to venture, I think, like many people, is uh, long, random, and somewhat frustrating. <laughs> Um, which I think is uh, pretty common in this world. <clears throat> um, I started a designing consultancy um, right out of school doing uh, you know, what, what uh, the big business world calls NPI, what most people uh, that we know in the venture world call new product development. Uh, and uh, this is <clears throat> sort of typically a service business model, just like uh, IDEO, as you may know, is probably the best example of a company that fits into that category. Uh, and I sure. uh, sort of approach uh, companies like ours and say, hey, I'm you know, looking for help designing this physical thing. Uh, and, and we would be paid uh, either a sort of a fixed rate or a sort of service uh, sort of contract for the, for the whole product. Um, and as we started to do more and more uh, products uh, for bigger and bigger companies, we started to hear about small companies that were struggling to do the same things that big companies do in their sleep. Uh, and so uh, we were sort of trying to figure out ways to to, to work with these tiny little hardware companies, um, but uh, they don't have any money, or at least the money that they have, they shouldn't be giving to us. Uh, and so uh, the sort of core uh, sort of thesis for Bolt was around helping small uh, hard, hardware teams build their first product. Uh, and that really covers everything from <clears throat> sort of brainstorming and sort of customer development all the way up through prototyping and sort of first production run. 
Wow. So you would you would go all the way back to ideation phase, requirements <laughs> definition, research, development, all the way through launch. Yeah. So uh, m- many many companies that we would that would work on the scope is pretty broad, uh, and so early on it's it's really all around sort of ideation and sort of concept development, uh, a lot of customer interview and development uh, in the very early stages. Um, but really, the sort of the meat of of what we would do in my past life was really architected around around sort of prototyping and and early engineering and and ID. Uh, and so you know some consultancies really focus on on sort of sort of user experience or, u- or user interaction. Some are more sort of engineering consultancies like Synapse, which are really focused on on sort of mechanical and electrical engineering, uh, and and we were what's called a full service shop, which kind of kind of covers everything, uh, and uh, it, it it makes you probably not an expert in any one field, but pretty good at sort of holistically thinking about product, which it turns out is really important for venture investing. Got it. And do you have a specific focus area then at the firm at Bolt? Not, not really. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's fairly specific in sort of our, our core thesis or mandate is really architected around connected hardware. And so these are all companies that have a physical product in their sort of stack of what they do. Um, a big part of that uh, is, is is architected around recurring revenue. And so we're pretty much uninterested in the traditional sort of 30% gross margin sale at Best Buy. Um, that's a very, very hard venture business to scale as GoPro and some others uh, have have taught the the venture world. Um, it is very challenging to avoid commoditization and a whole bunch of other dynamics that become really tricky at scale um, over 10 plus years. Uh, and so we really focus on companies where software and sort of recurring interactions are incredibly important for sort of both the bottom line of the company, but also the consumer. Awesome. You're speaking my language today. This is uh, <laughs> very similar to uh, Newstack's thesis on, cool. I call it IOTR, IOT with recurring or, um, you know, hardware as a service or smart hardware. So Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think they, they more similarly uh, sort of mimic software businesses and actually are pretty similar in, in, in you know, pretty much every dimension. Um, the one big caveat is that you have to be able to, you know, design, develop and manufacture a physical thing, which yep. many companies and investors especially are really unfamiliar with. Sure. Well, good. Well, um, any any other things on the thesis that that we should touch on before we sort of jump into today's topic? Yeah, we're, we're really not thesis driven, um, of course, other than the sort of uh, the detail I provided before about about sort of hardware and, and sort of sort of being connected and sort of software like revenue. Um, I think that, that that's a pretty, you know, pretty, pretty uh, hardcore focus of ours. But, you know, B2B, B2C, enterprise, all, all of the above, super interesting to us. We've touched medical devices. We've touched autonomous vehicles and uh, we've touched component sales like GPS and others. So we're pretty open minded um, when it comes to the category that we're really focused on. Awesome. Well, let's start off with talking about use cases a little bit. So you've written about designing for one use case versus building a platform. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, and I think a, a big part of investing, and, and again, I'm, I'm new to the venture world. Um, you know, this is really my, my first rodeo when it comes to sort of institutional investing. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think a big part of the job that good VCs play is, is knowing how to write, uh, sort of ask the right questions and then pattern matching of what works and what doesn't. Uh, and it's a uh, it's a thing that um, I think you have to get pretty good at as a as a VC, or at least that's my thesis. Now I've been doing this for four years, so maybe that'll change soon. But uh, I have pretty strong conviction that that pattern matching uh, is an incredibly important part of the venture business. Um, and so I, I have a you know I built a pretty strong thesis that um, that that companies that really focus on solving a specific problem really well uh, tend to do much better than than uh, companies um, and products, of course, uh, that are really trying to solve. You 
know, everybody's problem a little bit. Uh, and uh, I, I think that, that that thesis holds true with, you know, pretty much every company that's ever um, sort of started, at least in the hardware space that I'm familiar with. There are obviously companies that uh, that do attempt to build a sort of a more general product that's broadly applicable, but those tend to be harder businesses to scale. Um, I think there are certain uh, types of companies where that's really their focus. So if you think about... Um, Let's see, a, a GE coming out with a new dishwasher or something, right? Uh, it's a pretty sort of generic uh, product that not really a lot of people get really excited about. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, that can be an, an interesting business, but it's just not the business that I believe that the venture capital community gets really excited about. So when it comes to building a sort of high growth, uh, potentially high margin, hopefully high margin business, uh, I, I think it's really, really important to focus on specific problems and, and building solutions that are really targeted at those problems. Are you looking for a, a vision that allows for sort of the creation of, of more platform and broader things eventually? Or is, you know, a narrow use case as a, a short term and long long term strategy sufficient? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think um, we're open to a wide variety of entrepreneurs and their vision. And so more often than not, the companies that we're investing in, they start with a single sort of product for a single solution uh, or targeted at, at sort of solving a single problem. Um, and, uh, and and as they grow, that, you know, that road is long and winding. Uh, and so we are completely open to this sort of eventual platform approach. I do think it is incredibly hard uh, slash impossible to build a platform from the beginning. Uh, and there are very, very, very few companies that actually set out to do that from the beginning, or at least that are successful at doing that from the beginning. Uh, and more often than not, you start off as a single product company solving a really specific problem and, and it sort of grows out of that. Uh, and it could turn into a really interesting platform, but uh, almost always it starts off pretty specific. Right, right. And you've talked about the example of Google Glass versus Snap Spectacles. Uh, can you highlight the key difference in the approach of these products? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really important um, to, to focus on the fact that they have, you know, many, uh, many similarities. Uh, and when you look at the, the example from sort of an engineering standpoint, they're pretty much identical. Uh, you know, there's a little bit more complexity on the Google Glass side with with, with sort of, uh, you know, with a little projector in there and, 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 and trying to display information. But other than that, you know, they have radios, they wear, you wear in a face, they molded plastic, uh, you know, lenses, uh, you know, batteries, uh, a button or two, uh, you know, bit, you know, more or less the same piece of hardware. Uh, but the way people think about those products is incredibly different. Uh, and Google Apps was started as this very sort of early adopter centric sort of tech oriented product. Um, it had all kinds of social issues. Uh, I think, you know, many people still joke about it today. It also tried to do, you know, be sort of all things to all people. And it had walking directions and AI and it was working on some AR stuff. And uh, it just, you know, all kinds of things that they were trying to do uh, well. Uh, it turns out that's really hard. Uh, whereas the Spectacles example, uh, you know, they get rid of most of the complexity on the sort of sort of user experience side. And it's incredibly simple. Uh, and I think they've executed incredibly well from uh, my sort of brief experience with using it. I'm, I'm actually not a Snapchat uh, person by really any mean, um, uh, but, but from, but from, you know, I think it's sort of my job to play with some of this stuff and get a feel for, for, you know, sort of people's expectations on the product side and their expectations are frankly really low. Um, you know, it is designed to, you know, take 30 seconds of video, um, uh, you know, incredibly quickly, uh, and transfer to a single network, uh, you know, in a single app on your phone. Um, and that, that sort of simplification makes it much more likely that the consumer that purchases, uh, a, you know, spectacles, um, or probably other Snapchat cameras in the future uh, are really likely 
likely to be sort of exceeded when it comes to user expectations. And that is, a, in my opinion, you know, a critical dimension that uh, you know, products and young companies should be assessed on. Um, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in the way Snapchat thinks, um, uh, sorry, uh, Snap uh, now, uh, yeah, right. thinks um, about, about sort of user interaction and uh, you know, in particular hardware. Um, it's really to serve, uh, you know, to serve this, this end um, of, of sharing video from a sort of first person perspective. And it's very simple and, you know, you can say it in a sentence pretty elegantly, whereas describing Google Glass to, you know, my parents or something, it's not that easy uh, because it's trying to do so many things and it's, you know, to to, to so many different types of people. Interesting. Yeah, you've also talked about sort of the the two things that Snap did really well with spectacles that other hardware startups can learn from. One had to do with the customer base, the other had to do with uh, benefits. Um, Can you talk about these two aspects? Yeah, it, you know, I, I think it, it, you know, really, really focuses on 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 sort of two two dimensions, and I think there are many things that they've done well. Um, I think in in you know in in particular, um, they, they've they've focused on a very specific type of person, uh, and that type of person uh, in this case, sort of, I, I think I think you know, hip marketing people call it Generation Z, uh, but you know, for my intense purposes, there are people younger than me, <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, and. Um, their entire interface, not just the hardware, but the whole the whole experience of of using Snapchat as a product is really streamlined for types of people that 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 sort of operate that way, um, and so it's a fairly specific group of customers. Uh, the 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 Snapchat uh, sort of spectacles product, uh, you know, separate from the the app, is also really specific uh, and is designed. Um, it, it's sort of a sassy, loud product, uh, which is very uncommon when it comes to sort of early adopter tech products. Um, you know, it's, they're in bold colors. They're, you know, for a while they were sold in these very interesting and funny uh, sort of vending machines that would be dropped in a place for 24 hours and then taken away. Um, creates this demand for the product. Um, so just it, again, it's every single thing is thought through, not for, you know, what does every hardware company do? They didn't do a crowdfunding campaign and then, you know, try to sell a bunch of units publicly and then, you know, sell direct online and then try to sell through Best Buy, um, which is sort of the standard sort of template that most hardware companies, you know, in the consumer space target. Um, they're really saying, okay, what, you know, when we look at our customer base, what is the most compelling way to think about how to access those people and get them the most excited? And they design this, you know, kind of quirky, bizarre experience that most adults, you know, myself included, don't really fully understand, uh, but that, you know, people that are really passionate about that product are incredibly, you know, excited and focused on. Uh, I think they also do a really good job at targeting, you know, sort of people that are uh, socially, uh, you know, sort of in, in the public eye and are really conscious of sort of social dynamics uh, and all the things that go into whatever, being popular or being cool or being whatever. Um, and, uh, and I think Google Glass does definitely less of a good job of that. Uh, so, so I think this sort of narrow customer base is really one big part of that uh, sort of scaffolding that they built. Um, they're also really, really good at communicating uh, what they do. Uh, and again, because their product and, and sort of customer base are pretty specific, I think they get uh, you know, excellent marks when it comes from a sort of marketing standpoint. Nowhere on their website will you see, uh, oh, you know, it has this kind of Bluetooth radio, this kind of bit rate, and this is the resolution of the camera, and this is how the button works. You know, it's all uh, sort of benefit driven. Right, uh, and, right. and, and, and it's a, it's a very, very powerful thing that most early stage hardware companies really struggle with. And they talk about, you know, all these specific features and how they work and, uh, you know, you know, what the tech is behind them, et cetera, is really not the way snap thinks. And I think that that's a really powerful, um, sort of way to, to launch and describe a product. 
Great. And then, um, you know, something I've been thinking a lot about lately is, is Alexa and Amazon Echo versus Siri. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how do you sort of think about these two and how they've approached consumers differently and designed their their user experience? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's a it's a pretty similar example where you where you find, um, you know, the sort of broad versus narrow sort of approach in the beginning. Again, this is about the beginning. This is not about long term strategy uh, as being really effective. And so, um, you know, uh, again, I, I want to highlight these are very similar, right? They are both speech platforms. They have very similar types of software that have to be written. You know, many of the dynamics around, you know, how they how they operate are actually, you know, from an engineering standpoint, are actually, you know, pretty pretty similar. Um, but, but when it comes to sort of, again, sort of scope, um, especially of, of, of sort of product and customer, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're fairly different. Uh, and so Apple, you know, announced this product, which was amazing and can do everything. And, um, you know, it's going to be integrated into millions of phones overnight and it's this huge launch and, you know, everybody's really excited and has incredibly high expectations. Um, Alexa was, a you know, I don't know, I was on the private beta. I don't know how many they were sold, but it couldn't be more than a couple thousand. Um, that you had to, you know, know somebody to to get at least in the very early days and 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 be a, a prime subscriber, and it you know it it rather than being on a phone, which is in every kind of environment everywhere, um, it's a you know a physical product that sits in one place. Uh, it can it can get a pretty good idea of sort of acoustics and and you know make changes over time. Uh, when it first launched, it was you know, had a very specific set of features uh, that were uh, you know in my opinion like pretty simple and actually not very interesting. Uh, and so you know it was playing music from Prime Music Now or whatever the hell it's called, which you know I've never listened to before I bought uh, the first Echo device. Um, uh, you know it could set some timers and read the news and you know it was really basic stuff. Uh, but you know if you wanted to set a meeting or if you wanted to play music from Spotify or whatever it just couldn't do that stuff it would say i don't understand um and 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 so the real difference here is again this is launching as a platform in in, in apple's cases versus uh, in apple's case versus launching uh as a as a product in in alexa's case and just sort of growing uh, over time i would argue now the alexa platform is far more interesting than the apple sort of siri platform um and, and i think you know many many people smarter than me and that that, that analyze the speech space um you know would agree uh, and and that that really comes from sort of over the air software updates and adding to the backend platform and and really sort of setting user expectations and increasing them over time, uh, rather than setting them super high in the beginning and then trying to to meet that, which is really what Apple did with Siri. Got it. So you think this this first set of units uh, that went out to beta users, they were testing the number of requests they would get for things like Spotify or Pandora and and uh, decided to prioritize that higher on the the, the development stack once they had it's- launched to production. Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I, I can't comment specifically about what Amazon, you know, did or didn't do. Um, I, I, I can tell you, I went to a, a, a private event uh, that that Jeff Bezos held uh, not too long after the first Echo device was uh, was coming out of beta, um, and had said at the time there were fifteen hundred people uh, on the Alexa team. This was maybe a year and a half or two years ago. Wow. Uh, uh, and so it's, you know, I, I can't say exactly, you know, how that influences uh, what they were doing, but I can guarantee you that there were a lot of people um, thinking about these kinds of things. Uh, and that goes into, uh, you know, just to demonstrate how incredibly hard, you know, speech recognition and sort of action is when you're trying to do everything. I can't um, imagine the number of people on Siri. Maybe it's fewer. I'd be surprised um, when, when when Siri first launched. So, um, I, you know, I think it's just sort of a different approach. Amazon is incredibly good at being a little bit under the radar and a little bit sort of like 
overly intensive when it comes to building, uh, you know, products that are, you know, incredibly well thought through um, and sort of like under marketing and kind of over delivering. I think that's like in, 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 in many cases, their sort of algorithm um, is, is really, you know, delighting people um, based on their sort of expectations versus reality. Um, and I think there are, you know, countless examples of, of experiences I've, I've had with Amazon, especially when it comes to sort of shipping and product quality, um, where they just sort of go above and beyond without needing to. Uh, and, and I think this is a, you know, sort of one of those core examples. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Sure. And, I, you know, I don't think that Apple was always that way. You know, I wrote a, a blog post recently about this. I called it mm-hmm. Find the Gateway Drug. But I'm, I was comparing the, the Apple Watch to um, the iPhone and mm-hmm. how the, the Apple Watch came out with all these apps and all these services mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. kind of a platform offering. And it was confusing as to, you know, what, what are the, the killer apps here? What are the key use cases? Whereas when the phone came out, it was just a really beautifully done phone. The industrial design was great. The user interface was great. But there weren't a robust set of a million apps. You know, those were incrementally delivered over time. So mm-hmm. um, I feel like their approach with the two products was was totally different. Yeah. And, and I think in, in Apple's case in particular, Apple is an exception to nearly every rule, um, <laughs> uh, which is which I think makes them a very dangerous thing to compare other companies to. But that being said, like I, I think Apple um, you know, has a little bit of a different dynamic in that they are the, you know, the largest hardware manufacturer in the world. Um, they also you know, spend a huge amount of money on development, um, which is pretty different uh, from sort of the startup world that I'm really used to. Uh, and it's really important to be aware of sort of user expectations and, and, and quality and, uh, you know, driving hard with limited amount of money and limited people to make a perfect product that competes with Apple is, is basically impossible. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think it's really important to like, just remember that like, what, you know, the startup dynamics are really different than Apple dynamics. And as Apple gets huge and has, you know, you know, whatever, hundreds of millions of people using their products every day and, you know, billions in revenue and yada, 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 their expectations have to change over time. Um, to really, you know, satisfy the insanely high and incredibly unrealistic demands that that the, the public and you know even investors sort of put put on on the company, uh, and so I think the, the 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 startup world is definitely luckily a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, even your point about Amazon, you said that that Bezos said he had fifteen hundred people working on it. I mean, that's that's an incredible amount. I, I think my yeah, investment so- partner backed uh, a product called Ivy. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to to see how they could compete assuming yeah. the strategy is sound on, on the equity yeah. side. 
I, I completely agree. And, and I think uh, at least the advice we give to our portfolio companies is you can't compete. Uh, and so you have to, you know, in, in, in the same dimension, right? You can't hire 1,500 people and, you know, raise a billion dollars and yada, yada, yada. I mean, I guess there are a couple of people that can do that, but that's, you know, definitely the exception to the rule in the startup world. And so you have to you have to change the game uh, and sort of like, you know, create unfair advantages for yourself. Oftentimes that's focusing on a specific problem or, or you know, using a different technology to solve that problem or just sort of taking a different tack to, 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 to the whole way of building the company. Um, it is it is impossible for startups to compete in terms of raw horsepower uh, against large, well-financed, especially, you know, tech companies, you know, of the of the sort of big four or five companies that are out there. Um, you just can't win that game. And the reason that startups exist is because they're really nimble at figuring out, okay, I can take this other tack or I can, you know, try hiring this other person that's really good in this one dimension, or we can work on this little tiny subset of the problem that these five other people here, you know, have this huge problem with. Um, Let me try to optimize towards that. Uh, Trying to build a general consumer electronic device for everybody as a small, uh, you know, small, small startup that's underfunded and and, and understaffed is, is more or less impossible. Yeah, you talked about this piece about iterating early with with small numbers of units. You know, I I see a lot of SaaS companies that launch and they're iterating constantly, right? And they're they're doing new versions of of their product, and and they can they can do that from afar. But with hardware products, it's it's much more difficult. I mean, clearly the the software side can be adjusted, but um, once you get hardware units into market, then uh, it can be very hard to to make changes quickly. So, so how do you think about sort of the the early stage? Customer testing, customer validation, and mm-hmm. um, um, you know, adjusting the the product on the go uh, before yeah. you sort of go mass market. Yeah, it's it's a really good question, and probably something that hardware companies get wrong more than anything else, um, which is this really false belief, which people um, you know are told by it must be investors and their peers and other people around them that you have to build this perfect product first, uh, and it's really um, unfortunately it's just really wrong. <laughs> Uh, and so there's a lot of damage done, especially from sort of crowdfunding oriented um, sort of products and companies um, where they have this belief that I have to set these really high expectations and I have one shot to launch. And if, I, if it doesn't work out, um, I'm going to fail. Uh, that that way of thinking is it just couldn't be further from the truth. And it's funny to me because investors in particular are really good at coaxing their software companies to not think that way. Uh, and it's all about, you know, launching quickly and iterating and listening to users, et cetera. For some bizarre reason, <laughs> hardware companies uh, don't get that advice. Uh, and so, yes, it is a little harder to iterate once you've shipped. Um, but there's a whole lot of time before you actually ship a product that you can make, uh, you know, pretty good uh, sort of guesses. Uh, you know, they're really sort of, you know, intelligent guesses about what works and what doesn't. And so we spend a huge amount of time with our companies, not on launch strategy and how to make 10,000 units, uh, but really focus on making five units that, you know, you can find a couple of people that really love using those products. Uh, and so uh, you, you just iterate in a different way. And so it's not about iterating with the general public and doing new injection mold tooling every month and, you know, ramping up production differently. Um, it's really about product development. So you just sort of shift the sort of window of experimentation earlier and earlier. You will always learn new things when you launch publicly. That is inherent in any startup's life at ever, you know, ever. Uh, and so it's really, it's really about how you incorporate those changes over time. Uh, and instead of the software world where you're con- sort of constantly making those changes um, as as you sort of scale, uh, in the hardware world, it's a little bit more of a step function. And so you go through a big rev, you make you know a bunch of changes, you you know ship five, ten, twenty, fifty, hundred thousand units, whatever it is. Um, uh, and then, and then, you know, you say, oh man, after we 
we've sold 10,000 of these, we're going to, we're going to, you know, make these five changes and then you sort of to make some tweaks to the tooling and you might add some components to the circuit board and then you do the whole process again. Uh, and so, and so because of that dynamic, I think people are a little bit sort of thrown off guard about what the right strategy is from a sort of development standpoint. But in my incredibly strong opinion, it's really important to focus on how can you learn as fast as possible, especially as early as possible before you ship. Uh, and that dynamic is, um, is really the difference between success and failure when it comes to building a hardware company. Yeah, what's your opinion on validating early customer demand with Kickstarter, Indiegogo, crowdfunding campaigns? Um, generally not a fan, uh, uh, surprisingly. Um, I think this is, uh, if, if I had a, a one magic wish, it would be to convince my um, my, my venture capital peers uh, to stop uh, forcing their portfolio companies to do crowdfunding <laughs> campaigns. Um, it's really it's really a, a stress on the system, uh, which is, it actually hurts everybody. Um, and so there are certain companies which crowdfunding is an incredibly good fit for, uh, and they tend to be, you know, gadgets often in, in the world that we call CPG, consumer packaged goods. Um, they're, they're not really oriented around software. They're not really oriented around recurring revenue. They're more commoditized products, um, or they're companies that really struggle to raise money from private investors. Uh, this idea that you're going to go raise five or $10 million and then, you know, spend a million bucks on hiring, uh, you know, sandwich video to sh- make this amazing video for you. And then do this big gigantic launch on a, on a platform like Kickstarter or Indiegogo, um, is, is, is really, uh, bizarre to me. Uh, and, and I don't understand why there's this need this feels like there's this need from 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 founders to do that to feel like they're valuable. Uh, the best companies uh, uh, figure out how to do that on their own terms, uh, and so they they you know spend every waking minute trying trying to figure out how to optimize you know conversion and understand where their customers are and find the right channels to find those people and you know et cetera et cetera et cetera versus this like uniform you know sort of funnel approach to like. I got to do the sort of least common denominator launch strategy, which is a crowdfunding campaign. Um, and so I, I think with many venture backed companies uh, in the, in the sort of particularly in the consumer hardware space, uh, the, 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 the default strategy of going to launch um, via, via a crowdfunding platform is really not ideal. Uh, and, and I think, I think over the next handful of years, we'll start to see a decline in some of those companies. That being said, I think crowdfunding is an incredibly powerful platform for a huge variety of companies that just don't fit into the sweet spot of sort of the venture capital landscape. So you think it's a, a vanity play and it's just um, a focus issue? You know, they're focusing on on the campaign instead of building out the product and iterating with real customers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it sounds maybe a little overly simplistic to, to describe it that way. But I think at its core, I, I actually think that that's more more correct than, than not. Uh, and I think many investors say, oh, well, like, how many people are really going to buy this, you know, Pebble smartwatch or this, whatever. Um, why don't you go do a crowdfunding campaign? And once you raise millions of dollars, then I'll give you my money. Uh, and it's just an insane, lazy, um, you know, really unfortunate way of, of both financing and building companies. Uh, and so I would much prefer a, a, you know, a company we look at say, listen, we built, you know, 10 of these products. We gave them to 10 people. These are videos of, of, of them talking about their experience and they're all incredibly positive. Then 10,000 people that were convinced from a video to spend a hundred bucks on a gadget. Um, it just, it's just, it's so much more powerful to have someone give, you know, feedback on how how their experience was actually using a thing uh, versus someone buying into the idea of a thing, which almost inevitably will let them down uh, when they get it. Uh, and so it, it's just sort of this, I don't know, maybe it's my sort of East Coast conservative roots or whatever, but um, uh, j- just this idea of, of, you know, of, of, of getting direct feedback and, and learning how to make your customers happy is being way more powerful than, you know, I can, you know, spend a bunch of money and make a nice marketing video to get people to give me their credit card number. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, to that end, it, it proves the marketing, but not necessarily the value of the product, right? It totally. proves you can sell it, but yeah. are people really going to love it and enjoy it? I mean, I had Tom Tungus on the program and he was preaching about the values of SaaS and how yeah. it's an enforcement mechanism for SaaS companies to continue improving the product and making sure totally. that it's providing real value. Otherwise, people are going to select out. Um, yeah. And I think the same can be said for some of the things that you invest in, as well as what we invest in. If there's a, a recurring revenue stream, you know, customers can select out if the product isn't continuing to provide value. Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree with that more. Um, but, but companies that focus on marketing and launch, by definition, there's only so many hours in the day, are going to spend less time on focusing on delighting customers with a great product experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, that's really what drives me crazy is this like shift away from the really hard, you know, really sort of um, valuable part of building a company, uh, which is doing an excellent job um, of, of sort of delighting users and setting expectations appropriately. Um, and so it's really just sort of antithetical to the way I view, you know, hardware companies being being built. And I do my very best to, to change the minds of, you know, at least a handful of companies that we're really close <laughs> with. Um, turns out to be really hard because their entire life system is telling them, oh, you're only valuable if you sell $10 million worth of product on, uh, on a crowdfunding campaign. But I just I just don't accept that. Yeah. Tons of fun in part one of the interview with Ben. Stay tuned for part two, where we cover Ben's position on how startups can cross the chasm from innovators to the majority, how Fitbit pulled this off where Pebble failed, whether his observations are exclusive to hardware or if they apply to all startups. Ben's insights after 10 years of attending CES and seeing the evolution of Eureka Park. And finally, we'll get Ben's advice for founders starting an IoT, smart hardware, or connected device startup. I hope you join us for part two of the interview with the brilliant Ben Einstein. And as always, show notes, links, and newsletter sign up is on the website at fullratchet.net. Until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.